Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. As we settle into the Lenten season, and hopefully some spring weather while we're at it, we're going to be taking a look at the life of our Savior and His teachings through the Gospel according to St. John. So go ahead, if you will, and turn to John chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word. All through his gospel, he presents us with several challenges, many hard sayings. And what I, was I always tried to look for things that I haven't covered yet. And one of the things that I noticed during my Lenten season, it's, it's always important to focus on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of what? Our faith. Not only that, but he is our example. He is the mirror by which we are convicted. And he is also that the example that is laid before us in who we are to walk as Christians. And I realized that in the five years that I've been here, this being my fifth, that I've really hit hard on Matthew's gospel and on Luke's gospel. John's is rather unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they effectively tell a similar story. In fact, it's long believed that the one... one was a basic outline on which the others were fleshed out. But John is strange <laughs> in his language compared to the two. This is a gospel that we often start new believers in because it's, it's contradictory. And in one hand, it's shallow enough on the surface that a baby could wade through it and yet, when you dig into it, it's, it's deep enough to drown an elephant. We often, uh, you hear John referred to as John the mystic, because he does take a very spiritual look at our Savior and our Savior's connection with his Father. So I'm going to give you a bit of an overview about the book before we delve into it on, on our Sunday mornings. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the man himself and about where he comes from. The Apostle John was the son of Zebedee, um, brother of James, and we often have this image of him. He's the youngest of the apostles, and he's often painted, if you'll see him even in our stained glass window over there, he's the guy without the beard. He's usually seen as kind of a, a young figure, maybe a wimpier figure, but this is a guy who's referred to along with his brother James as the sons of what? The sons of thunder. In fact, in one instance, he actually looks at Jesus when he was surrounded by a bunch of doubters and he basically says, why don't you call down fire on these guys? So he was not the wishy-washy type. He was very steadfast in his faith from the moment he was introduced to Jesus, as we're going to uh, listen about here in just a moment. He was a native Jew of Galilee. He was heir to a large fishing business. Now we hear, we have a, this idea in our heads that the Galileans were uh, simple unlettered fishermen, that they didn't really have much of an education. 
But we know from history that that's not true. They were educated in synagogue. Anyone that's a Jew, in kind of a forerunner of the Sunday school class, they were taught the value of the Hebrew letters. They were taught reading and writing and arithmetic. They had Before you could be declared a man at age 13, you had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You had to memorize Torah to be considered a man, to be our mitzvah in this culture. He also, we read, not only was he, his father, and his brother in this fishing business together, but they had quite a few boats and they had servants. So he was heir to quite a big enterprise professionally. He had expertise even at this young uh, time of his life in fishing, boat work, administration, and bookkeeping. And he was called personally to be a disciple of Christ. Not only that, but he was part of Jesus' inner circle. When we see him go to the Mount of Transfiguration, which you could call a ministerial staff meeting, it was Peter, James, and John. So when we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter, James, and John. So he was there through all of it. In fact, he is regarded by himself. He doesn't actually sign his own gospel. We hear him refer to himself in the third person as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He became an apostle. Later on, he was tortured and imprisoned by Rome. He writes the book of Revelation while he, after he's been tortured and boiled in oil, tradition tells us, survives, writes the book of Revelation at the Isle of Patmos, and after he's released, after the emperor at the time dies, he journeys to the city of Ephesus, Supposedly, he's still caring for Jesus' mother Mary at that time. He becomes the bishop over the church there and takes care of those, uh, of those believers until the day he dies. He's author of this gospel, the book of Revelation, and three letters, somebody that we ought to give some attention to. Now, I talked about the other gospels. Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the Jewish Messiah as the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Mark writes to Christians who are living in persecution and emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant. He's writing primarily also to Gentiles, people who didn't have a Jewish background. Luke was writing also to Gentiles and emphasizes Jesus as a universal Savior, a bringer of justice, of mercy, and introduces the, the reader not only to who Jesus is, but the God who is Jesus' Father. John was written first to Jewish believers in Ephesus. And it has built in this understanding of who God is, of Jewish spirituality. But more than any other gospel, John focuses on Jesus' divinity. And you see that from his, what we call his Christmas account. So if you will, take out your copy of God's Word, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. When you get there, say amen. This is John's Christmas story. And you see off the bat that he is emphasizing Jesus' perfection and the fact that he not only was a person, but he was a person who also happened to be a member of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word, he tells us. And the Word was with God, and the Word what? was God, the Logos, the encapsulation of the wisdom, the power, and the glory of God in a human being. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made, and without him what? Nothing was made that has been made. Without the influence of Jesus, nothing exists. He is not only the author of faith, he's also part of the author of creation itself, of reality. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And here's the truth that John is trying to highlight all through these pages. He's giving you a summary in spiritual writing of Jesus' ministry. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness what? Has not overcome it. The darkness of this world cannot extinguish the light of God. God's light will always persevere. There was a man sent from Galilee whose name was John. And it's important to realize that John is not talking about himself here. He's talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John is setting up the fact that at this point in time, John was a follower of John the Baptist. The fisherman John at this time was someone who was learning at the feet of this very Old Testament schooled prophet. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, and this is one of the saddest parts of all Scripture, even though the world was made through him, the world what? Did not recognize him. In some of your translations, the world knew him not. Even though he had created everything, even though he was the author of life himself, the world rejected him from the outset. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural... And he's trying to, to tell the Gentiles here that would come afterwards, he's trying to tell them and the Jewish believers at this time that we're not talking about just the creation of God, but we're talking about the Benai Elohim. We're talking about a, a direct spiritual life, a spiritual newness of life, a new creation. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband will, but born of God. Those born of the flesh or of the flesh, those born of the Spirit are spirit. John will go on to describe what he's talking about here in chapter 3. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling tabernacled, more literally, pitched His tent among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. On the screen is the Greek word monogenes, only begotten. What John is trying to set up that culturally we don't really get in this era and time is that Jesus is the only natural born, the firstborn of the Father the only directly conceived by God. The rest of us are creations, yes, but spiritually speaking, as part of the family of God, we have not yet come into His own. We are adopted into sonship through the ransom that was given to us on Calvary. 
So for those of us, the, the thing that I'll pick on the NIV here when it says is one and only son, because if you take that at face value, guys, we're in a lot of trouble. What he's telling us here is that you were not part of the household, you were a slave. But God, out of His love for you, purchased you, redeemed you, paid the price in full for you. And once you were set free, not only were you set free, you were adopted straight in, naturalized into the family of God with all of the rights and privileges of being a child of the very king of this universe. That's what John is saying in this simple sentence. who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, as in the Baptist, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now to our, if you know anything about John the Baptist, and if you remember through Matthew's Gospel, who was born first, John the Baptist or Jesus John the Baptist. He was approximately five months older than Jesus. And yet, who does he say came first? Jesus. So John is basically pointing to his own disciples, to this rabbi, this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, and saying, even though he's younger than I am, he was before me. He is the firstborn of all creation. He got it. This Old Testament prophet understood the complexities of who the Messiah was. While other Old Testament uh, scholars during that time wanted a king, wanted someone with an army, wanted someone in power, wanted someone with authority to shake off the shackles of Rome and conquer the kingdom back to become a global empire, John the Baptist knew that this was to be a ministry of grace, that this was to be a ministry of hope, that this was to be a ministry of an outpouring of God's love and an offering of a free pardon of sin. John understood that. Behold, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice being prepared, who takes away the what? The sin of the world. It's important to understand that, in a, in, that at this time, the Jews, which were... Uh, led by the Pharisees, that were led by the Essenes, that were led by the Sadducees, that were led by the Zealots, did not want the first coming of the Messiah. They wanted the second. They wanted the wrath. They wanted the military. They wanted the blood. They wanted the outpouring of nationalism. God wanted to point them to a kingdom, another kind of kingdom, that didn't have political boundaries that didn't have racial distinctions. He wanted to point them to a kingdom where righteousness was redefined, where the Old Testament, where the ceremonial law of God, because there's a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. Hopefully we get that. There's a distinction between the moral law of the Old Testament, which is echoed in the New, and the ceremonial law that divided the kingdom of Israel. This new kingdom would see the ceremonial law fulfilled and the moral law lived out, not as a list of checkboxes, but in the very hearts. I will write my law on your hearts. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Moving on. Out of his fullness... We have all received grace 
in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Underline this in your copy of God's Word. Chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came from one greater than Moses. For before Moses was, I am, Jesus says. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, the only begotten, who is Himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. As He would later say to His own disciple, if you have seen Me, Thomas, I believe that was, then you have seen who? The Father. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. So let's take a look at this Messiah that John is using this very flowery spiritual language to describe. Jesus, the monogenes, the only begotten Son of God, the living Word of God, a living presence filled with exemplifying God's grace, God's mercy, and also God's truth, God's righteousness, God's perfection, and God's law lived out. I come not to destroy the law, but that it might be what? fulfilled that law thankfully has passed away the word was god creation occurred through him and yet once he came humanity itself his own creation did not receive him but those who did believe were adopted in as children of god born of the spirit luke puts it this way as he's writing this account He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. This is what Jesus is reading. It's his mission statement, if you will. As was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found where the place was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in some cases, this is a direct literal reality. And in most cases, because we all fit that, that's our spiritual reality. Good news to the poor. Do we own anything spiritually before Christ? Do we have any treasures stored up in heaven? The answer is no, we stand as bankrupt before God. Not only bankrupt, but enslaved. To proclaim freedom for the prisoner. Why? Because we are shackled in our own sin nature that we cannot get out of on our own. The blind, because without Him, without the presence of the Holy Spirit transforming us, opening our eyes to the scope of eternity, we can only see the here and now, which means we have no conception of what spiritual truth is outside of a relationship with Christ. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Notice, if you ever do a study in Isaiah, Jesus actually stops at a comma. This is the first coming. That comma delineates what will happen in the second coming, but let's move on. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He's just read. He hasn't done a whole lot yet. He just got the scroll of the prophet as the traveling rabbi, someone who was apparently respected as a degree-carrying rabbi. He stood up before the congregation, 
read the scroll, and yet just from the way that he read, their eyes were what? Fixed upon him, they were held captivated by just the way that he was proclaiming the word of God. He hadn't even spoken yet. And here he gives us one of the two shortest sermons in all of the scripture. Today, this scripture is fulfilled what? In your hearing. Today, recognize that your Messiah is come. So on top, Jesus came to bring the gospel to the marginalized, to bring relief to the suffering, to bring attention to God's mercy, to free those who were bound in spiritual slavery. And in case you've missed it, that all of that is us. And to give hope to those who were oppressed for the sake of the gospel. We'll talk more about that later. So that's the Messiah. A lot of this we already know. Unfortunately, what we don't know is a lot about John. What's very... <clears throat> I hate to say this, but I will mention it. There are some of us that uh, have the middle name Baptist stamped on our churches that have no idea what that word means. In fact, it's a common misconception, and it's surprising how common it is, that when you ask someone who's Baptist, who's just a regular layperson, who may have spent 20-some-odd years as part of a congregation, when you ask them what does Baptist mean to them, they answer, and I'm not kidding, it's because we believe what John believed. Let me try to undo that misconception for you really quickly. Because John did have a ministry. John was the forerunner of Christ, but John was also the last of the Old Testament prophets. Write that down in your notes. John was the last of the Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets. This is his ministry. We turn back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 19. The apostle describes it this way. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Now I want you to notice this. This guy who wore camel hair, who died not in extravagance, but on locust and wild honey. This guy who is not necessarily somebody that you want to smell next to. Attracted so many followers as he traveled the banks of the Jordan River that the temple dispatched a traveling group to find out what this guy was all about. He'd attracted so much attentions, uh, attention, excuse me, so many followers that the Jewish authority of the days had to send out a discovery team. So who are you, they're asking him. Who are you? And according to John here, he never, ever was tempted by claiming himself to be the Messiah, unlike others. They asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? Because it was in their mind that Elijah himself would appear before the appearance of the Messiah. And that's why most suspect that one of the two prophets in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, will be indeed Elijah. But that's another sermon. Are you Elijah? 
He said, I am not. Are you the prophet, or in some of your translations, that prophet, the prophet foreseen in Deuteronomy, when God proclaimed that one day somebody that sees God face to face and communicates with God face to face just as Moses did, a prophet in Moses' likeness or after his type, quote unquote, would emerge. Are you that prophet, they're asking him. And he answered, no. Finally, they said, okay, who are you? I added the okay, I'm sorry. Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied to the words in the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. I am the forerunner. I am the herald. I am the one who's calling Israel to repentance. I am the one telling you that you need to get your act together right now because the king is coming. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, then why do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? For that I've got to explain about baptism in this day. And really quickly, baptism was not something that's nearly as commonplace as it is in our day and time. Baptism was a rite that was reserved only for those that were coming into the Jewish religion from another religion outside. Proselytizing, it is where somebody from a pagan faith would make themselves known to the temple, would accept Jehovah, or uh, Yahweh, excuse me, as the one true and living God, would commit himself to the law, and would ceremonially, uh, symbolically bathe by immersing themselves in a giant bronze laver of water. And when they emerge, basically, I am washing away the old. The old is dead. And I'm rising out in newness. Does that sound familiar? Everything that I was beforehand is gone. And I'm emerging clean before a living God. Does that sound familiar? It should. So Jesus himself, at this, excuse me, John is going a step further. Because he's not baptizing unbelievers becoming believers. He's baptizing believers. He's baptizing people that are already part of the commonwealth of Israel. He's calling them to give up the old and to accept the new. To wipe away all the unrighteousness and to rise in righteousness. This was a radical notion for the Jews of the era. Because again, this wasn't intended for the Jews. They were born into it. But John is giving a foretaste of a new birth to come. Why do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water. This is his explanation, and you need to know this. I baptize with water, John replied. But among you, someone who's already here, someone you haven't recognized yet, one among you stands who you do not know, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm not even good enough to be one of his disciples is what he's saying. I'm not even good enough to care for the master. I'm not even good enough to stand in his presence. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. I call them to repentance. 
He calls them to be born again. Verse 28, all this happened at Bethany on the other side of Jordan where John was baptizing. Incidentally, Bethabara, which was the name, literally translates to house of the traveler. John, son of Zechariah. Zechariah was a temple priest. Once he was a serving high priest. He was the first prophet of the Old Testament to find his way into Scripture in 400 years' time. Now, God was not silent in that 400 years, but He was the beginning. He was the first prophet to be mentioned by name in what we now call the Bible. He was the older cousin of Jesus through His mother Mary. He was under the Old Testament law. Write that down. He was the pivot point where the Old Covenant transitions into the New Covenant. He is the one who literally is taking the Old Covenant and saying it all points to Him. The volume of the book is written of me, as He says, as Jesus Himself says of Himself. Baptism, He was introducing in a new way as a means of total renewal, even for the believer. As Baptists today, that's one of the things that we pick up on this. It is not unbelievers or not those who are unable to proclaim their own faith that we baptize, but it's those who declare their faith. We believe in what's called believer's baptism. You have to have accepted the sacrifice of Christ. You have to believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And you have to accept Him not only as Savior but as Lord and be willing to follow Him through the death, burial, and the what? His resurrection. He called Israel to repent in preparation for the announcement of their King, the Messiah. Matthew goes on, I tell you, this is what Jesus himself says about this character. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Let me say that again, just in case you missed it. Of all of those who are human beings, the greatest, born naturally, highlight that not spiritually, of all those born naturally, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, those born spiritually, the least of those is greater than he. Why? Because again, John was right, well, was under the old covenant, the covenant of works, the covenant of law. The covenant of grace, Jesus himself is telling us, is greater. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law promised, prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, this isn't something else you need to note in the margin of your Bible or in your notes. He is the Elijah. He is after the type of Elijah. What Jesus is basically saying is if you can wrap your mind around it, even though he wasn't himself the person of Elijah, he was the Elijah who was to come. He was my forerunner. He was the prophet in this type, in this image, in this way. Whoever has ears to hear, when Jesus says that, pay attention. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. The old is passing away. 
The old is inferior to the new. The law is inferior to grace. But of all those who proclaimed the gospel before the cross, God himself, through the voice of his son, says that none were greater than John the Baptist. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, the final and greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, the pivot point from the law to grace, the one who challenged the unrighteousness of the temple and the political authorities to the point that he would lose his life, being beheaded. And he emphasized the moral law. Repent and be baptized. But I baptize you with water. But there is one coming among you who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here is how we see the old pointing to the new. Verse 29. The next day, after those of the temple had left, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sacrifice. Behold the offering that God himself is supplying. Behold the Passover lamb that will break the chains, not of political slavery, but of spiritual slavery. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water is that he might be revealed to Israel. John is surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of his own followers. And he's saying that the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired me to do this baptism, to call Israel to repentance, is also so that he, as the Christ, would be revealed to you. John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit of God come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, if you will. The one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit comes down and remains is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is why Jesus tells John in the other Gospels. I, John is telling Christ, his, his younger cousin, that I'm not worthy to lace your sandals. Why are you coming to me for baptism? And Jesus tells him, I am come so that righteousness might be what? Fulfilled. This is why. How many of you knew that? How many of you heard that preached before? This is why the testimony of who Jesus is. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day John was there. He's sowing the seed so that when John goes to meet his end, his disciples will transfer to Christ. And he who has set the groundwork teaching all these people about the Old Testament is also teaching them how the Old Testament leads to the new. And as Jesus is walking by to collect his first apostles, 
His first disciples, excuse me. John, who's already recruited a good number of them, looks to Christ in the distance and says, Behold the Lamb of God. The next day, John was there with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, behold, say it with me, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. This is the old passing into the new. The law tells us that the law itself is perfect and it condemns the imperfect. But grace tells us, the new covenant of grace tells us that grace itself, because it comes from God, is perfect and it forgives our imperfections. It heals us of our sin. The law tells us that we are justified by works, by sacrifices, by the blood of dead animals. But grace tells us that justification is not something that we give. Justification is offered to us as a what? As a gift. The law tells us that righteousness is based on lists that human nature cannot possibly on its own accomplish. But grace tells us that righteousness is based on the transforming power of the Holy Spirit of God that changes your own nature from someone who is impossible of following the least of God's commands to someone fully capable of living in the image of Christ. The law tells us that we stand alienated from a holy God. Grace tells us that God paid our ransom and not only set us free, but adopted us as His own children. And He did so unconditionally. The law tells us that the wages of sin is death. Grace tells us that through faith in Christ, we have what? Everlasting life. This is the difference from the old to the new. Once we were aliens, once we were separated, once we were incapable of coming to God, so God himself made a way to see beyond our faults, no matter how great, no matter how grave, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous, no, not one, And yet in Him, the Bible tells us, we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. We do not deserve the love of God. But God loved us anyway, all of us. To the point that I wholeheartedly believe that if there was a possibility that any one person could be saved, Christ would go to the cross for that person individually. His outpouring of grace is something that is offered to all who would believe, all who the Holy Spirit would initiate faith within. For whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. That's any of us. That's all of us. If there are any among us that have yet 
to claim that promise free to all, what a fantastic day it would be to be the day of someone's salvation. And it's offered to you this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, no strings attached, no matter your past, no matter the chains that surround you now, no matter the guilt laid on your shoulders, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. If there are any that have the guilt of that sin still on your heart, when we get into the time of invitation in just a couple of minutes, don't hold back. While everyone else is singing, slip out to the aisle. Come forward. You'll find me there. This is not a place of judgment because we're all in that same category. All of us. Every pastor that's ever been behind this pulpit, every teacher that's ever taught downstairs, every member that we've ever had, all of us initially stand as bankrupt before a holy and just God. But if we but confess our belief in Christ, and if we, are, if we repent earnestly of our sins, turning from ourselves to Him, then we claim that promise of everlasting life. If there is something haunting you, something from your past that has changed you, that has bogged you down, or if it's just the thought that you've never taken advantage of the invitation in that way, come as we sing. If there are any among you that believe but have yet to enter the waters of believer's baptism, someone who needs to take that first step of obedience, this is your time as well. While they sing, slip out of the aisle and come forward. If there are any who've been longing for a place to call their spiritual home and have found a family here and have found a place where they have been nurtured, where they've been challenged, where they've been supported, where they've been met as a brother or sister, come forward. And find your place at the table. We sing about the family of God. We say brother and sister around here because that's the type of love we're supposed to have for each other. No matter your last name, no matter your past, no matter your challenges, no matter what the enemy wants to hold over your head, there's a Savior that will take it away. As the musicians come forward, whatever the need is on any heart, even if it's a special prayer request, come. Meet the embrace of Christ and His people. If you'll stand as we sing, Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.